a conclave of angels. Yea, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and made supplication unto him. Hosea chapter 12, verse 4. September 2010 It's right here, man. We're supposed to be looking at it. I don't see it. We're at the pin. This is it. I repeated semi-desperately. Call them, offered MRM. Shit, it's five past five. We're late. The inescapable conclusion was that we had gotten lost on the way to our first investor meeting. Lost and late to boot. We had agreed to meet in a Starbucks in Los Altos, one square in the patchwork quilt of South Bay suburbia, surrounding well-known hubs like Palo Alto and San Jose. Each patch was a separate maze of street numbers and grid conventions, a Cartesian lattice randomly giving way to the impractically sinuous roads used by planners to make their air-conditioned stucco nightmares seem more organic. Having agreed to meet at the Starbucks north of the Los Altos Country Club, where the investor had his daily mid-afternoon workout, we had confidently headed out from Adgrock HQ without a doubt that Google Maps would guide us true. It was MRM at the wheel of his Honda Accord family mobile and me riding shotgun and navigating via a soon-to-be-revealed-as-perfidious Google Maps. With mounting panic, I called and asked if the Starbucks was on the street whose signs we were stupidly staring at. Oh, yeah, Google thinks we're over there, but really we're not. We're over on 2nd Street. Sorry. Fuck us. Tell Russ we're going to be really late and try to reschedule, I told McEachin, who'd been the original point of contact. So began our relationship with one of the two most important investors in the Adgrock saga. Later, after he had given us a pile of money, we learned he had been more than annoyed. He was actually pissed off by our incompetence. He almost wrote us off. If he had, then this story would have ended right here. Who was this life-saving character? Russell Siegelman was a perfect exemplar of the old-school class of angel investor that typified a previous era in Valley Tech, and which coexisted, some would say uneasily, with the current crop of pseudo-angels. Undergrad at MIT, Harvard MBA, plus the additional laurels of Baker Scholar, he had had a long career at Microsoft, where he oversaw the creation of MSN, the Yahoo-esque content portal with messaging and email features before Facebook demolished that world and Salon.com. Footnote. At Harvard, it's Baker Scholar. At Stanford, it's R.J. Miller Scholar. This is the added frosting on the MBA cake if you graduate within the top 10% grades-wise. It's the people who took their MBA classes seriously and thought that the content actually meant something rather than assuming that the entire point of an elite MBA was the curated network and jump-starting of a new career direction, which is what you're actually paying $70,000 a year for, in Stanford's case. Such people often end up in venture capital, the final readout of individuals with discipline and ambition, but no actual talent. End footnote. He then spent a decade at Kleiner, Perkins, Caulfield, and Byers, KPCB, or just Kleiner among the Cognoscenti, the other superlative VC firm alongside Sequoia. After investing in companies and serving on boards, Siegelman had turned to private angel investing as his full-time gig, other than being a serious cyclist, of course. Every super-affluent valley personage with nothing but money and time on his or her hands seemed to spend a good chunk of it perfecting some healthy but useless skill, such as road biking or kiteboarding. He was fit in that lean, sinewy way of an elite soldier in a wartime army. Argyris and I typecast him as a paratrooper in the IDF, 
formidable, dependable, and kind of menacing. Israeli paratrooper became his office sobriquet. Russ invested his own money and was answerable to nothing or nobody except his own net worth. If you doubled his money, he'd be happy. If you quadrupled it, he'd be ecstatic, though more was always better. If it looked like the company was about to implode, he wanted his money back rather than to simply write it off. Russ was the type of guy who had written first checks for companies like Oracle, Sun, and eBay in the initial booms. An angel when angels really did resemble some supernatural winged creature who emerged from the heavens and miraculously jump-started your business experiment. As such, they were rational in that they merely wanted a good return on their money rather than a hundredfold return for their fund. They were also committed. This wasn't merely one of 50 bets made with other people's money that fit into a portfolio of risk. It was their actual skin in the game, skin they had earned playing that very same game. Given his old-school nature, we went through the long and somewhat haphazard vetting process such angels conduct. He called in favors from friends, themselves involved in search marketing, to sniff us out and see if we knew what we were doing. He ran our proposed roadmap past other friends to see if it jibed with what incumbents in the space, for example Facebook, were doing. He and I had long chats by phone, mutually feeling each other out to see if there was the personal chemistry required to work with each other without friction. Fortunately, we had contacted Russ before demo day, our initial aborted meeting thanks to Google Maps losing track of a Starbucks, which turned into a series of meetings with him and his personal brain trust. So all this lurching due diligence transpired before we had other investors in the mix. As we'd soon find out, timing was everything, and if we hadn't been grooming Russ, and he us, for weeks before, we'd have lost what became our lead investor and company-saving cherub. After we successfully jumped through his hastily arranged obstacle course, he finally invited me over to his home in Old Palo Alto. Even within the rarefied heights of PA, there are gradations of status. Old Palo Alto is where the Valley elite live. Steve Jobs and Google co-founder Larry Page had both lived in Old PA at some point. The broad tree-lined streets conceal tasteful Tudor-style craftsmen or faux Spanish mansions, often nestled in miniature compounds. Paul Graham, the YC guru, lived in such a home. The lots are surprisingly modest. Palo Alto was not always an enclave for the fabulously wealthy. Far from. But if you wanted expansive estates, you'd live in more rural-seeming Atherton or Woodside anyhow, as many of the elite did when they started larger families. Footnote. Palo Alto literally means tall stick in Spanish, and it refers to a thousand-year-old redwood tree that served as a landmark along El Camino Real, the royal road the Spanish built when colonizing Alta California, and which now serves as a major artery running through all the former missions, now cities, they founded. The tree still stands a few blocks from downtown Palo Alto and a stone's throw away from the Stanford campus. End footnote. The house on Santa Rita Avenue did not disappoint. An updated craftsman, it bristled with gables and arched windows and was embellished with expensive stone and wood accents. Russ met me at the door wearing his usual uniform of an old T-shirt and shorts and looking as if he had just finished a long bike ride, which he probably had. The inside was baronial and encompassed a vaulted lofty space that the exterior, partially shielded by a thick barrier of foliage, did not suggest. We passed Russ's office, which was paneled in an Amazon forest of hardwoods, walked around a monumental staircase framed by swooping, curving banisters, and went into the open living room space. 
Russ's son was playing video games in a neighboring den, and I pseudo-smiled a greeting as Russ led me to a dining table. Sitting on either side of a corner with Russ at the head, we got down to the subtle business of our going deal. We were, though you're no doubt tired of the fundraising-as-dating analogy, at the third date of the VC entrepreneur courtship. It was time to either make a move or not. So what cap were you thinking of raising at, and how much are you raising? Ah, the cap. Russ and I were finally talking turkey. This is the one number, the number, that matters to an early-stage company raising money for the first time. It's worth a diversion. Startups are business experiments performed with other people's money. Here's how you fund the experiment. The first money in is known as the seed round, as if germinating a mighty redwood tree. Historically, this money came from the proverbial friends and family, or from angels like Russ, or from the pseudo-angels, as we'll soon see, like Chris Sauka. Companies from measly Adgrok to mighty General Motors are funded via a mix of debt and equity. In the startup world, the first money in is usually in debt form, which is counterintuitive and also deceptive as it's not really debt that is paid off. All early-stage companies, except those that raise an exceptionally large round of funding from the get-go, raise on what's called a convertible note. Despite the fancy name, it's essentially debt with a nominal interest rate. Should the company be acquired or raise yet more money, this note converts into equity in the company such that you become an actual owner rather than a creditor. Sounds more complicated than it is. What it boils down to is this. I lend you $100,000 to start a company. When you raise your next round of cash, I expect to get $100,000 in equity at whatever the going price of equity is at that point. Here's a simple example with numbers chosen for ease of exposition, not business reality. An investor writes you a check for $100,000 to get the startup going. A year later, after hitting some product or usage milestones, you raise $1 million on a $10 million valuation, your typical post-seed funding round, referred to as a Series A. That debt, the original $100,000, converts into equity in the company. Given that the valuation is $10 million and the investor put in $100,000, he now owns 1% of the company. From the point of view of the investor, this is actually problematic. Say you're the hot startup of the moment in the midst of a bubble and you raise on some crazy valuation such as $100 million. Well, pity our poor angel investor. He gets only 0.1% of the company. In essence, the better the company does, the less of it he gets. While he's guaranteed, in theory, to get a price per share equal to follow-on investors, that's actually a gross mispricing of his risk as he put his money in far earlier when the company was far riskier. Enter the investor's great friend, the cap. The cap dictates the maximum number at which the company will be valued for the purposes of calculating the investor's stake when the company takes more investment capital. In our previous example, say the initial $100,000 investment had been done at a cap of $3 million. Then, despite the company's raising later at a valuation of $10 million, the angel stake amounts to $100,000 divided by $3 million equals 3.3%, a much bigger slice. The angel's effective price per share is that of the cap rather than that of the valuation, giving him a huge discount on the equity compared with investors who just put money in. As a result, this cap is perceived in essence, if not in contractual reality, to be a proxy for the valuation of the company at the time of the angel's investment. 
Early-stage entrepreneurs will bandy about their cap number as if it were a real company valuation, when in truth, it's an input to a hypothetical calculation that may or may not play out in the future. Funding a company via equity rather than debt is a different beast. With a cap note, there's no universal agreed-upon value. You can bounce from investor to investor, like a bee from flower to flower gathering pollen, getting notes signed at various caps, and no one need be the wiser. In priced equity rounds, however, everyone has to agree on a shared price and a total amount sold, and everyone must sign on the dotted at once. Typically, there's a round lead, usually the biggest investor in that round, who will help you herd the other investor cats into the deal. Also, the contractual legal work is more complex and hence more expensive. Then the bank wires fly and your money. To make an analogy, a capped note is like having to seduce five women one after the other, while an equity round is having to convince five women to do a fivesome with you. The latter is exponentially harder than the former. Footnote. The women analogy breaks down in that, unlike with women, the more investors you seduce into your moresome, the more likely others are to join. This is an expression of the lemming-like nature of tech investors, most of whom scarcely merit the title. End footnote. Why all this obsession with either a cap or a real valuation? Does it matter more than mere phallic jockeying for a big number? Yes, because the great enemy of every entrepreneur, the villain hiding in each cap table, is that monster of gradual, withering decay, dilution. This refers to the obvious numerical fact that a company is, in some ways, a big, creamy cheesecake. You and your co-founders might own 90% of it to begin with, with 10% left for the eventual employee option pool. But the more money you take in, the smaller the founder's segment becomes. The higher the valuations, or the caps, the less the investors take, even for the same amount of money they give you. And so with each successive round of funding, the smaller your piece of cheesecake gets, no matter how the investors take their share, via debt or equity. And that's why entrepreneurs struggle to keep that cap, or valuation, as high as possible. It's effectively setting the price of that cheesecake wedge they're selling, as well as its size. The higher the price, the less cheesecake they have to sell for the same amount of funding cash in the bank. What Russ and I were about to negotiate at that dining table of his, couched in the warm bosom of cosseted Palo Alto wealth, was precisely the price of Adgrock cheesecake, or this pseudo-valuation that would determine everything. In the summer of 2010 for the pre-chosen YC elite, a good cap was in the $6 million range, a stellar cap was around $8 million, and only a really buzzy company like Hipmunk, a travel startup that was a Reddit founder's second act, got close to that. The middle of the YC pack, where we were, was in the $3 million to $4 million range. By the time this dinner table conversation took place, demo day had come and gone, and we were talking to several investors. I had felt them out and realized we were safely in $3 million cap territory, and perhaps more. So to his answer about raising money, Russ, we're raising five hundred to 750000 at a cap of $4 million. I know we talked about $3 million, but I don't think that's where other investors are right now. Russ, betting his own money, greeted the news with some dismay. That sounds really rich. Pause. Let me know where you end up with the other investors, followed by a sideways shake of the head. One of the few skills that I could bring to the startup game was my ability to detect human weakness, like fresh dog shit on a man's shoe. It stunk from across the room, and I could smell it. 
Russ's hesitation and wavering headshake were a clear tell. He'd do $4 million if properly pushed. We just needed to provide a sense of urgency. We'd have a burning sense of urgency soon enough, although it wouldn't push the cap in the direction we expected. The other big investor in Adgrok was a case study contrast to our Israeli paratrooper. Chris Saka was and is one of the most famous angel investors in Silicon Valley. A loud and opinionated social media presence, early-ish Googler, and early investor in Twitter and Uber, he was one of the half-dozen or so stars in the early-stage investment firmament. His 24-karat gold name in your cap table worked that essential but elusive miracle, convincing other weak-kneed investors to invest simply due to his presence. Unlike Russ, he did not invest his own money, at least not exclusively. At this level of the investor stratosphere, these micro-VCs raised funds of between $20 million and $40 million, taking money from other members of the tech wealthy who didn't want to bother with vetting companies and playing the funding game. For these professional investors, despite their public swagger, they had a boss, or rather a fund of bosses, who owned the money they invested. If they didn't produce a generous return for that fund, they were back to being do-it-yourself angels assuming they had any personal money left. Sokka had emailed me the moment I had gotten off the stage at Demo Day. I dig it, was the subject line, and then he mentioned his Googler background and understanding of what we were doing. Sokka will figure prominently in the story ahead. However, our sole face-to-face -face meeting was the one he suggested a week after Demo Day. The week's delay was caused by the fact that he lived in the lakeside ski resort town of Truckee, Nestled in the alpine paradise of Lake Tahoe, three hours from San Francisco, where groups of young startupistas would rent houses, or old, rich startupistas, like Saka, would own them. Our meeting place was Brick House Cafe, an oddly dumpy and mediocre western-themed two-floor bar diner in the very heart of the Soma startup district of San Francisco, and one of the go-to meeting places, along with the creamery, for funding and acquisition scheming. It was next door to Alexander's, the pricey expense account steakhouse par excellence. Splurge and get the freshly truffled filet. And a block away from that epicenter of all things startup, South Park. Argiris insisted on coming along on this scavenging foray, despite my desire to insulate the boys from the money-grubbing bullshit. We found Sokka inside, as advertised in his prolific social media persona, in a western-themed cowboy shirt very apropos for the venue, sitting in one of the hard-backed wooden booths. He made a gesture of standing up and shaking our hands before we nestled in the cramped booth and got down to business. As with the YC pitch, Argiris and I tag-teamed Sokka, preaching the now well-practiced Adgrok gospel. Within about a half hour or less, he announced, I'm in, and the meeting was more or less over. Just like that. Both sides of the booth got up to leave, and Sarka darted toward the door, then hung a quick left and took the stairs to the mezzanine. We sauntered out of the restaurant, both still shell-shocked at the ease of the thing. On the threshold, we ran into Solomon Hikes, a founder from our YC batch. Footnote. Solomon Hikes's company, Dot Cloud, made computer infrastructure management tools and would eventually morph into Docker, a new paradigm in systems deployment and management. What would become its flagship product was in fact an open-source spin-off of an internal project that met sudden, and one supposes surprising, industry-wide acceptance, while its original YC product languished. 
By 2015, that product had become so successful, Docker achieved unicorn status, meaning a greater than billion dollar valuation, becoming one of the most promising companies in Silicon Valley and the unquestioned champion from our YC batch. Along the way, however, it peeled off one of the co-founders, Sebastian Paul, in a founder shakeup. Even the best suffer startup drama. End footnote. We exchanged rush greetings before somewhat stupidly announcing we were there to see Sokka. So am I, he said, and leapt up the stairs to the mezzanine. This would come to be a common feature of these meetings, running into YC classmates coming to or from meetings with some prominent investor. It felt like everyone was in some sort of speed dating event held all over the Bay Area, in cafes and conference rooms from San Francisco to Menlo Park, trying to find that hurried mutual fit that would lead to another meeting, if necessary, or a check, if possible. For us, right then, this was a victory, all the more important for being the first in the fundraising race. Sokka was in the bag, and we had a gold-plated name in the cap table now. But we needed to go after even bigger piles of money if we were going to do this right. The Hill of Sand Shylock a pound of man's flesh taken from a man is not so estimable, profitable neither, as flesh of muttons, beefs, or goats. I say, to buy his favor, I extend this friendship, if he will take it so, if not, adieu. And for my love, I pray you wrong me not. Antonio, yes, Shylock, I will seal unto this bond. William Shakespeare, The Merchant of Venice September 2010 Speaking of Venetians, most everything we know as modern banking originated in the northern Italian city-states of the early and mid-Renaissance. The bankers of the day were Jews. Many were Sephardic Jews fleeing the 1492 expulsion order from Spain's Reyes Catolicos. The church disallowed Christians from practicing usury granting Jews an unexpected windfall in the form of a religiously ordained monopoly on money lending. They were otherwise persecuted and oppressed, forced to wear distinguishing signs, prohibited from land ownership and most trades, and barred from living inside the city walls. By 1516, the Jews were proving themselves too useful, and Venice's doges considered the issue of allowing them residence inside the city. They were granted living rights in a dirty, gritty part of the city named the Ghetto Nuovo. Ghetto means foundry, referring to the slag heaps left by the neighborhood's previous occupants. Locked behind the ghetto's walls at night, the Jews plied their money-lending trade during the day, with Christians traveling to the otherwise rancid part of the city to borrow cash. The modern-day Silicon Valley ghetto, though sadly without the money men living behind locked gates, as in erstwhile Venice, is Sand Hill Road a meandering stretch of two-lane blacktop that wends its way from Palo Alto to Menlo Park, this uninspiring piece of suburban scenery is swarmed by aspiring entrepreneurs with a laptop in hand and a sly pitch in mind. In New York, the old joke is that Wall Street starts in a graveyard and ends in the river. In Silicon Valley, just as symbolically, Sand Hill Road starts in a shopping mall and ends at a particle accelerator. The shopping mall is the Stanford Shopping Center, a suburban monument to upscale consumption built on land formerly occupied by Senator Leland Stanford's vineyards. After World War II and before the tech boom from which it so richly profited, 
Stanford University was a mediocre institution with sagging fortunes, which it tried to revive by leasing land to developers. The resulting shopping mall, standing proudly alongside the Valley's preeminent academic institution, is an excellent reminder of the values underlying Silicon Valley, not to mention Stanford students and staff. The Particle Accelerator is the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center, SLAC for short. As venture capitalists and wealthy alums prefer funding Googles to winning Nobel Prizes, of which SLAC has several, the facility is funded by the U.S. Department of Energy. The runway for its accelerated particles travels alongside Sand Hill Road, under Interstate 280, and into the foothills of the Santa Cruz Mountains, which define the western border of Silicon Valley. Lastly, there's a high-class brothel, the Rosewood Sand Hill, a posh restaurant and hotel complex wedged in between Slack and the Sand Hill Interstate 280 intersection. Thursday nights at Sand Hill are famous for serving as cougar nights, where older, lonely women, and younger ones explicitly on the clock, congregate to ensnare Sand Hill's wealthy denizens. So you see, there are all sorts of strivers and strumpets on Sand Hill, trying to catch that next score from the guy in the Audi R8. I was merely one more hustler among the many. Our first big-money institutional VC meeting was with Sequoia. Founded in 1972 by Don Valentine, himself a part of the first generation of Valley companies like Fairchild Semiconductor, Sequoia was the absolute creme de la creme, the capo di tutti capi of the venture capital world. Footnote. Fairchild Semiconductor occupies a legendary place in U.S. tech history. Founded by William Shockley, a Nobel laureate, and the inventor of that central artifact of our electronic age, the transistor, Fairchild is known for having recruited and then antagonized the team that eventually became Intel. Shockley ended his career embroiled in polemics about scientific racism and eugenics. He rather famously contributed his seed to a sperm bank of recognized geniuses and Olympians. By the time of his death, he was a bitter, broken man of ruined reputation, estranged from all family and colleagues. His children learned of his death via newspaper obituaries. Don't come to Silicon Valley looking for sanity, dear reader. End footnote. This meeting had been the result of an initial pitch to Mark Dempster, the marketing partner at Sequoia charged with the Y Combinator relationship. YC had held a Sequoia Day in the first few weeks of our batch, reflecting the accelerator's growing clout with large VC firms. The day before, I had reminded the boys that we were pitching the biggest VC firm in the valley and to not fuck up anything in the code base. True to form, the boys hadn't quite realized what that meant and had shifted the code base such that the local code running on my laptop wouldn't work anymore. They were hacking away on building AdGrok, after all. I discovered this one minute before my appointment with Sequoia when I realized that the AdGrok product suddenly wouldn't load in my browser. An angry, screaming phone call to MRM later, I had an emailed screenshot off his laptop as eye candy. The pitch, to the extent we can call my desperate salesmanship that, involved lots of clever phrasing and hand-waving, for lack of anything else. But sometimes you score the pot off a pair of twos. Dempster took a shine to our idea, and he scheduled a more formal pitch meeting at Sequoia with his venture partner Brian Schreier, who had led Dropbox's first serious funding round the year before. Now that the boys realized what we were dealing with, they wanted to ride along to the pitch and see what the great Sequoia was about. This was a bad idea. In general, 
Either the CEO or the smooth-tongued founder designated for the purpose should be involved in the fundraising, and that person alone. Fundraising is an operatic drama on the order of a Latin American telenovela. Avoid the company-wide noise and contain the pointless din of the begathon to yourself or someone at all costs. Sequoia was ensconced in one of the regulation two-story poured concrete and wood-trim open courtyard structures that dotted the manicured slopes around Sand Hill Road between Stanford and the 280. The impression was that of understated corporate efficiency, with Palo Alto's supernaturally pleasant climate lending a certain Elysian quality. If you didn't know the context, you might think it the bland corporate headquarters of some national insurance company, or perhaps the high school classrooms in a moderately affluent L.A. suburb. Inside, however, the decor was sleek and California minimalist modern. Dark hardwood tables, cream-colored wood floors gleaming with fresh wax, conference room chairs of contrasting exposed steel and light-colored fabric, and recessed halogen lighting everywhere. The intended effect seemed to be that of the bridge on the Starship Enterprise in Star Trek The Next Generation. The receptionists were jaw-droppingly hot. I'm talking got lost on the way to New York Fashion Week hot. They took our names and escorted us into a conference room. Then I saw what was on the walls. The real showpieces, the absolute pièce de résistance, the artworks for which this was all merely a museum, were the framed prints of corporate logos and funding round tombstones hanging from every wall. Tombstones are the chintzy-engraved lucite bricks used to commemorate a deal in high-stakes American corporate life. On Wall Street, they mark the syndication of some stock or bond deal, an IPO or a bond issue, for example, and decorate, with varying degrees of derision or seriousness, many an investment banker's desk. In Silicon Valley, the land of no sarcasm, they're taken seriously and tile the walls of any uber-successful VC firm. Thus did the tombstone commemorating the initial $25 million funding round for Google beam forth its rays of divine benediction, like the image of the Virgin of Guadalupe in Mexico City's Basilica. Every religion requires its miracles and stories of exalted sainthood for mass veneration. Capitalism's miracles simply culminate in NASDAQ ticker symbols rather than saintly relics. Apple, Atari, Google, Oracle, Yahoo! YouTube, Zappos, PayPal, Kayak, Instagram, Airbnb, Dropbox, LinkedIn. The corporate logos hung in large framed prints, a mini Louvre of victorious American capitalism, of corporate triumph. It was stirring stuff to be paraded past such a pantheon, presumably to see if we were equal to their legacy. Hot receptionist parked us inside a conference room, and the boys and I waited nervously, silent, not knowing what to expect. Brian made his appearance shortly, beaming, good-looking, and well-groomed. He had the entire VC package. Bellarmine Prep, a Jesuit all-boys school like mine in San Jose. Princeton, Morgan Stanley, Google, then Sequoia. He oozed patrician ease, tinged with a hint of wolfish entrepreneurial savvy, perhaps faked, perhaps not, which seemed to be the de rigueur air of most high-end VCs. We walked him through what existed of the Adgrok product, a working demo this time, the vision, and the opportunity. He listened politely, nodding quietly at times, and asking relevant questions. As someone who had worked in what's termed online sales and operations at Google, he grasped the market problem immediately. 
Eventually, Sequoia would choose not to invest, purportedly due to a competing investment in Kenshu, an Israeli company building a somewhat similar search marketing tool. Per Sequoia's email, it liked keeping white space between its companies. That's one of those truths that are also polite lies. Either way, Sequoia was studiously prompt and polite in communication, and even provided several introductions down the line that were helpful. In VC, as often in life, it's the incompetent and insecure who are generally the assholes, the masterful and successful, not to mention those universally perceived as the best in their field, are playing the long game. You never know where the next Airbnb is coming from. Investment bankers have their golf, Wall Street traders have squash, and the new VC entrepreneur tech elite has kiteboarding. An amalgam of kite flying and surfing, kiteboarding involves getting on a floating snowboard attached to a U-shaped kite the length of a small plane wing, which threatens to whisk you to never-never land. Like most patrician sports, it requires lots of pricey equipment and access to select real estate. In this case, that real estate is often Chrissy Field, a waterfront park in SF's douchiest neighborhood, the Marina District. When I'd sail by the area in my 40-foot cutter, the temptation to veer into the kiteboarder's appropriated waters and take out a few VCs was almost irresistible. There they went, zigzagging back and forth in front of the biggest natural wind tunnel in North America, twixt yacht and container ship. Occasionally one would tire or get caught in his kite lines and take refuge on a buoy. A passing boat would then rescue the drenched member of the tech elite from drowning or death by great white shark, which occasionally populated the entrance to the Golden Gate. Naturally, one of the elite valley confabs revolved exclusively around kiteboarding. A senior venture capitalist at Charles River Ventures named Bill Tai, along with professional kiteboarder Susie Mai, hosted the punnily named Mai Tai Kiteboarding Camp in Hawaii. Like all things Valley, it mixed a certain hippie, back-to-nature transcendentalism, the organization supports several ocean charities, that American obsession with athletics, and the hard-nosed hustle of the entrepreneur. Unlike Eastern yacht clubs, where access to the stolid establishment is gated by birth or balance sheet, Access to Mai Tai is bought via a mix of social capital, personal brand, and or some ineffable flavor of cool, which often manifests itself as perceived thought leadership in an industry. As with so many other things there, as long as you can get someone to accept whatever alternative currency you're doling out, the Valley will always stand you another round. I knew a couple of attendees, and they were precisely the ever-present Valley players, flitting between giving and receiving venture capital always founding one startup, advising another, or trading up between them, who were exemplars of their tight-knit world. The Bill Tye of Mai Tai fame was in our fundraising sites. In mid-demo day harangue, I had noticed a dark-haired figure on the extreme right of the front row, like politicians who spot the one guy in the crowd who's entranced and address him specifically, both to hone the message and to focus the delivery, I had locked on him and his furious note-taking as a rhetorical crutch. He turned out to be George Zachary, a partner with Bill Tye at Charles River Ventures. After I approached him in the post-demo day mosh pit, he invited Adgrok to come and pitch. The boys, doing their own demo day hustling, also managed to wangle an invitation from Bill, his partner. Into the pitch I went. At this point, it was like pulling the cord on the back of a vintage doll. It just rolled out like the hundredth performance of a well-practiced monologue. 
After I fielded the usual questions, Bill Tye, who was seated directly across from me, looked me sternly in the eye. But what if Microsoft comes in and offers to buy you for $50 million? Are you going to sell? The question tore the well-worn script from my mind, leaving me momentarily stunned. At the thought of Microsoft buying three guys in a few thousand lines of Ruby code for five, followed by seven zeros in cash, I could feel an incipient case of the giggles coming on, which, suppressed by my superego, came off as a smirk. Well, Bill, you know, we're really trying to go after a huge market here, <laughs> and we want to solve this Google last-mile problem. So... The damn smirk wouldn't go away, no matter how hard I tried, and the giggles simmered beneath the surface like water on the cusp of boiling. So really, we're in this for a much bigger outcome than just $50 million. Plus, who wants to work at Microsoft? <laughs> Did any of them come from Microsoft? Shit. I couldn't think of their CVs while suppressing giggles. Wrong answer, dickhead. A chill went through the room. I rambled on incoherently for a while with my uncooperative mug and eventually gave up. Well, we like making decisions here quickly, so expect an email by tonight, Zachary uttered finally, and they handshook me out the door. The email arrived that night, as promised, and was short and sweet. No. Ty's question about selling out, however, would prove prescient. When I got off the stage at Y Combinator on Demo Day, Two investors immediately had come after us. One was the aforementioned Chris Sokka. The other was Ben Narison. He'd physically shot up from the massed ranks of investors and trotted after me as I ambled off the stage. Standing somewhat awkwardly just outside YC's door, I gave him an extended version of our pitch, which he consumed with that look of rapt attention, accompanied by staccato bursts of questions, which was the unmistakable sign of sincere investor interest. Narison was thin and small-framed, with bright blue eyes behind round wireframe spectacles and curly-cropped hair. He had a work uniform, button-down shirt, cotton slacks in white or khaki, a slide belt, like the sort Boy Scouts wear, with little anchors on it, and, absolutely essential, Sperry topsiders, blue, no socks. In all our time together over the ensuing months, I would never see him in anything else. His intensity and fast-talking clip made you guess at New York roots, but he was actually a Southerner from Atlanta who had moved to Boston for college and ended up in New York only later due to an interest in fashion. In the late 90s, at the beginning of the first Internet boom, he was the founder and primary shareholder of FashionMall.com, a company that produced web storefronts for high-end clothing retailers back when the notion of selling stuff online was an innovative breakthrough on the order of general relativity. He had taken the company public at precisely the right time before the crash and pocketed a huge sum, which meant that afterward he had embarked on that quasi-retirement of the moneyed and tasteful bon vivant, food and wine writer. Somewhere in there he came out west and started investing in companies. His current gig was at a venture capital firm named Triple Point Capital, where he headed its new but growing seed stage practice. Triple Point was a minor oddity in the VC firmament in that it provided debt financing, money you actually had to repay, to technology companies with real capital expenditure needs, like a fleet of trucks. It was just getting into the equity investing game, but hey, all the cool kids were doing it, and we've got a balance sheet for it, so why not? It had hired Narison to head up its seed practice and find it deals, and so after our entrepreneur VC impromptu first date following Demo Day, 
he had asked me to come in to present to his investment associate. A word on VC titles and hierarchy. There are various flowery titles that the VC set adorn themselves with. Associate, principal, analyst, partner, operating partner, managing partner, general partner, and so forth. The main distinction is whether one earns what's called carry or not. Simply put, carry is a piece of the financial upside in the fund whose money the firm invests. From the point of view of the entrepreneur, this is all noise. What matters to you is whether the smiling face in front of you, wearing a crisp white collared shirt under a wool half-zip sweater, has the ability to present and defend a deal at the Monday partner meeting and corral the other decision-making partners into agreeing to a deal. Everyone else at the VC firm is as much an accessory as the hot receptionists. One quick way to cut through the shit. Ask your pretender to influence. Do you have decision-making power? If he or she even remotely hesitates or hedges, you're speaking to a lackey, whether he or she acts like one or not. His or her only utility is to get you to the person who does have that power. Everything else is so much pig swell. So root around such people if a real investment check is your goal. Arguably, and this is the canonical YC advice, don't even accept a meeting from someone who can't answer yes honestly to the above question. You're wasting your time. Back to the drama. I was in repeat performances of the Sand Hill VC show when I drove up with my much-abused BMW convertible to yet another cluster of generic two-story office buildings and parked among the Priuses, Porsches, and Teslas. Once inside, my eyes had to adjust to the cool darkness. The receptionists were absolutely not model-esque Sequoia caliber, resembling more what you'd find in a dentist's office. I didn't know enough about the VC world to interpret that as a good or bad sign. The decor was dark by Sand Hill standards, lots of black marble tile, a gray rug, and black desks of indeterminate construction. I was left alone in a large conference room, probably where the Monday morning partner meeting happened, to wait for Narison's associate. The general air of the place was quiet, bordering on absolutely silent. Nary a hum from a computer fan or ventilation. That's one of the most striking things about VC offices. Even in the middle of the day, they are absolutely still, like an empty museum or library. Narison's associate made an appearance. Indian, MBA from some American school, your standard-issue entry-level VC. Evidently, we had a couple of professional relations in common who had put in a good word. This stresses the importance of cultivating a network in Silicon Valley. Unlike on Wall Street, where a professional network is conceived more or less when you are, popping out of an affluent uterus in Rye, New York, and setting you on a track of Andover, Yale, Goldman for life or not, in the valley things are more fluid and impromptu. Any hustler who can make superficial friends of the California variety and publish a few blog thought pieces while collecting the echo of confirmatory social media approval, is as much part of the elite as any member of a Harvard final club. Of course, you can lose your place just as easily, something an East Coast elite need never fear. But such is the greased pole of Silicon Valley fame and power. Anyone can try to ascend, but nothing will arrest your fall. Following this almost cosmetic associate pitch, plus more due diligence, Narison agreed to float us to his Monday partner meeting. This was big. The Monday partner meeting is the cadence to which the entire venture-backed technology world dances. At that meeting, which typically lasts a good four to five hours, 
Starting early and running to mid-afternoon with a break for lunch, the business of the venture partnership is done. Updates on existing portfolio companies are given by the relevant partners, who, as often as not, will have a board seat. Invited entrepreneurs pitch at what's likely the most important hour of their life, and new potential deals are floated. Since this was a small seed deal, chump change really, I didn't need to come in and pitch to the assembled high and mighty, fortunately. With VCs, the yeses are usually immediate, while the noes are typically slow to arrive, if they arrive at all. If the partners reacted warmly at Monday's meeting, we'd get a call or email that very evening. If they didn't, well, he'd get to writing us an email at some point during the week, and all we could do was wait. Turning and turning in the widening gyre. We spin in an ever-turning circle, and it is our delight to change the bottom for the top and the top for the bottom. You may climb up if you wish, but on this condition, don't think it an injustice when the rules of the game require you to go back down. Boethius, The Consolation of Philosophy September 10, 2010 we were sitting in a celebratory post-demo-day mood in the living room of Argyris's Mission Apartment, the same space where we had hacked the first throwaway prototype whose non-demo had launched this whole YC adventure. The beers were out, and we were still surfing that wave of intoxicating startup high that fluctuates between elation and terror. My phone rang. This is Roger Cole. Roger was a partner at Fenwick & West, one of the big three Silicon Valley law firms. Via Wiles we'll soon explore, we had rather improbably secured him to represent us and then even effectively pay us for the privilege. Unexpected phone calls from lawyers are never good. I straightened up in Argyris's Ikea chair and mentally braced myself. I'm sorry to inform you that today Adkami filed suit against you in Santa Clara County Court. As our lawyer of record, Roger had been served the court documents. I'm sending them now. I checked my email, and there it was. Superior Court of California, County of Santa Clara, Adkami, Inc., Plaintiff, versus Andrew F. Garcia Martinez. Footnote. Yes, I was transmogrified into Andrew, perhaps the most egregious anglicization of my name ever. AZ's name was also misspelled. End footnote. Matthew R. McKeachin, Argiri Zimnis, Electron Mine, DBA, Adgrok for misappropriation of trade secrets, breach of contract, intentional interference with contractual relations, breach of the duty of loyalty, and injunctive relief. That litany of bold-faced transgressions was our rap sheet. It covered just about every suable offense a Silicon Valley employee could commit, which mostly boiled down to stealing intellectual property. Since Adgrok was vaguely trafficking in the same area of paid search marketing as Adkami, our former company was using that as the pretense for a lawsuit. Mostly, though, it was sheer, mirthy ego. We had been forewarned, Adkami having sent legal hate mail weeks before, the sort of menacing recital of employment agreement restrictions that serves as the warning shot across the bow in corporate litigation. This triggered our securing a preemptive relationship with Fenwick and why Roger was there to receive the lawsuit paperwork. I had hoped Adkami would be slow to action, slow enough for us to finish the demo day fundraising. The lifelong Machiavelli fan in me remembered that memorable line from The Prince, War is never avoided. It's only postponed to someone's advantage. 
I had thought it would be postponed to our advantage, but we'd clearly miscalculated Murthy's vindictiveness. Most shockingly of all, we had been personally named. This wasn't a company thing, where we could hide behind the corporate veil. These charges were personal, and we stood to lose everything financially. Wilson, Sonsini, Goodrich, and Rosati, the most expensive and formidable law firm in Silicon Valley, had been contracted to murder us via litigation. We had maybe $2,000 in the bank at that point. An hour with a top-shelf Silicon Valley lawyer costs around $800. The only way out of this mess was by raising money and using that to defend ourselves. But Murthy had, with exquisite sadism, timed the lawsuit for precisely the worst time, at the very peak of our fundraising power, right after YC Demo Day. Now that hard-won momentum was all gone. We were well and truly fucked. I'm a catastrophic thinker. I enjoy apocalypse films and zombie invasion flicks. The Road Warrior, a.k.a. Mad Max 2, is probably my favorite action film. 28 Days Later is a close second. I don't know if it reflects a murderous antipathy to all humanity or just a taste for anarchy and societal collapse. Either way, I always expect the worst. Here's what I thought would happen to Adgrok in our impending legal meltdown. MRM, who had a family to support and no stomach for a protracted fight, would quit and find a regular job. Think about it. He had a little cash in the bank, but he had been spending that to get by while building Adgrok. Beyond some equity in a modest home, he had nothing at this point. If we lost the suit and were sent up the river, his whole family would pay the price. Gone were the karate lessons, the school trips, maybe even the house itself. The entire household would be ruined. So what if he did leave? Argiris and I would slog on, with him doing the technical side and me doing everything else. If we had no luck raising money, we'd turn my blogging and marketing skills to embarrassing adkami as much as possible. With my musings on New York Tech, Goldman Sachs, and whatnot, we'd already garnered a sizable fan base of thousands of readers, many among them gossipy Valley insiders. Such a sordid legal altercation would surely draw that chattering and judgmental crowd. We'd publish every legal document with every ridiculous claim. If that still went nowhere and things looked really bad, what would happen? Remember, we were personally named in the suit and faced full personal liability for any awarded damages. The allegedly stolen adkami intellectual property in question, although in actuality completely worthless, had been developed after tens of millions of dollars in funding and would be considered worth as much by the courts. With civil damages to pay, we'd be completely ruined. More than ruined, we'd be in hock up to our eyeballs. Our names in the valley would be hopelessly sullied, as we'd be considered trade secret thieves, practically the sexual predator of the tech world. With no job prospects, there'd be no way of paying any awarded damages. In the event of the final apocalypse, Argiris would get on a plane to Greece, cursing the United States all the way, never to return. The suit wouldn't follow him there. And me? I'd burned my bridges on Wall Street with the Goldman Post, so there was no going back there. British trader could take care of Zoe, but I'd be destitute for the foreseeable future. My real fear, and something I never shared with the boys, was that Murthy, in his manipulative rage, would offer them a job back on ridiculously good terms. They'd abandon me. In fact, in one of the legal broadsides they sent our way, Murthy mentioned welcoming Matthew and Argiris back to Adkami, and very pointedly not me, as if they were wayward sheep. 
but he never really tried to woo them back with a special job offer or personal appeal. Given how poorly he had treated both MRM and AZ on departure, it's not even clear that would have worked. But either way, Murthy was out for blood and would stop at nothing short of destroying the entire Adgrok construct. And here he made a serious mistake. As Sun Tzu informs us, no matter how cowardly by nature, anyone fights to the death when his back is against the wall. A wise combatant always allows his opponent a way out, something Murthy and his maniacal pursuit of us hadn't provided. Faced with no choice, even the skittish boys would fight to the end, particularly if the actual cost of the fighting, if not the risk of losing, had been passed on to others. Despite my fears, MRM stuck it out. He would bet his family's future on Adgrok, staking the future of the very kids Argiris and I grumbled were distracting him. For all of his usual trepidation about everything, MRM was the actual daredevil here, playing capitalism all in and for keeps. As much as I'd often get annoyed with MRM, he took the biggest risk of all of us. I have never forgotten that. Argiris also held firm. Just as when Adkami threatened to report him to the immigration authorities, our Greco-Argentine Ph.D. manned up and did his brave duty on the foundering Adgrok boat. Here is a key insight for any startup. You may think yourself a puny midget among giants when you stride out into a marketplace and suddenly confront such a giant via litigation or direct competition. But the reality is that larger companies often have much more to fear from you than you from them. For starters, their will to fight is less than yours. Their employees are mercenaries who don't deeply care and suffer from the diffuse responsibility and weak emotional investment of a larger organization. What's an existential struggle to you is merely one more set of tasks to a tuned-out engineer bored of his own product or another legal hassle to an already overworked legal counsel thinking more about her next stock vesting date than your suit. Also, large companies have valuable public brands they must delicately preserve, and which can be assailed by even small companies such as yours, particularly in a tight-knit, appearances-conscious ecosystem like that of Silicon Valley. America still loves an underdog, and you'll be surprised at how many allies come out of the woodwork when some obnoxious incumbent is challenged by a scrappy startup with a convincing story. So long as you maintain unit cohesion and a shared sense of purpose and have the basic rudiments of living, you will outlast, outfight, and outrage any company that sets out to destroy you. Men with nothing to lose will stop at nothing to win. Shortly before we had announced our departure, an early investor and mentor of Adkami had somewhat improbably died. Footnote. A smoker, Motwani had reportedly gone outside the Atherton home he shared with a wife and two kids for a late-night puff. His wife found him drowned the next morning in his small residential pool. Whether he had fallen in or decided to go for a late-night swim despite not knowing how was never known for certain. The county coroner measured an extremely elevated alcohol concentration in his blood. End footnote. Rajiv Matwani was a legendary Stanford computer science professor who had mentored countless students and entrepreneurs, including the Google founders. He was a showpiece advisor to the company, and Murthy made a big display of mourning his unexpected demise. After all the threats and strong-arming to keep us from leaving, in the same way that an abusive husband brings home flowers to make it all right, Murthy gifted us an unsolicited intro to one of the big power attorneys in Silicon Valley, Ted Wang of Fenwick and West. 
With much to do, Murthy declared that this going-away present was a posthumous homage to Rajiv. He might even have gotten a bit misty-eyed as he said it. I immediately scheduled a call with Ted to relay our fears about the guy who had brought us together. I didn't trust Murthy to let us go so easily. Ted turned out to be a savvy and knowledgeable Silicon Valley player. From the earliest days, his was a voice of wise counsel in dealing with Murthy. When that conflict escalated into a full-on lawsuit three months later, he unhesitatingly threw Fenwick into the fray, less because of the value of Adgrok as a startup and more due to outrage at the offense against the informal Silicon Valley rules. A large company didn't sue a small company just because it could. This was bullying on the startup playground, and Ted Wang wasn't going to stand for it. Once the legal bullets started flying in earnest, Ted introduced us to another Fenwick partner, Roger Cole. Cole was a litigator for Fenwick, the frontline soldier who'd conduct the actual war. He was not the swaggering legal gladiator you'd expect, and his absolutely calculated and frigid demeanor led to our nicknaming him The Undertaker. There was still the little issue of payment, though. Ted liked us, but not enough to do this for free. Ted and The Undertaker each billed out at something like $600 to $700 per hour. But the rapport we had built with Ted was worth more than money in the bank, as was our pathetic underdog role. We'd have to convincingly count on that somehow. As matters turned out, without Fenwick, we would never have been able to mount a defense. To say Murthy was punished for his one iota of kindness would be an understatement. The lesson here is, if you're going to be an egomaniacal, sociopathic prick, then do it properly and murder your enemies outright, rather than throw them a bone and expect to kill them later if there is trouble. They might just turn that bone into a weapon.